0: If you want to talk to someone in Perth, It's not that hard to get in front of people, even CEOs of some of the bigger companies here or the Premier or whoever it might be. It is possible to get senior government and business people and connect with them. So it creates that sort of local community effect in a significant way, which is helpful. I think that also creates more of a collegiate relationship between the institutions here because collaboration is important in tech development and usually the easiest people to collaborate with. With, uh, people who are close by.
1: Rowan McDougall is the Director of Commercialization at Curtin University in Western Australia, and he joins us on Talking Tech Transfer today to discuss the challenges faced by a remote ecosystem such as Perth. We also talk about driving innovation in a region known for mining, which led to one of Curtin's most prominent spinouts to date, and what the success of graphic design platform Canva means for the local venture capital scene. He also tells us about West Tech Fest and explains why Australian startups tend to list early. Rowan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jerry. Good to see you. It's really good to have you. To start with, can you give me an overview of Curtin's tech transfer activities and the various programs you offer through Innovation?
0: Yes, so our primary focus, of course, is traditional tech transfer, so identifying opportunities for new products and services arising from research here at Curtin. But over the years, like many tech transfer operations, there's been some mission creep into encouraging entrepreneurship activities more generally in research staff, student population, alumni, the general community. So we run now a range of programs that really start at the shift of mindset stage. So trying to encourage people to actually think about commercial application of their work, think about an entrepreneurial pathway for their research and reward that kind of pathway. So the first significant program is called a Curt Innovation Awards, which is about trying to reward people for that sort of endeavor. There's prize money attached to it. There's status in the institution with the vice chancellor turning up to an awards event every year and handing over prizes. In fact, our um, next event is next Friday. And so we're fortunate to be able to meet in person here. We have, I think at the moment, about 350 people coming along to the event, which are mainly representatives of the local innovation community. So investors and entrepreneurs and industry, government come along and we showcase some of the latest disclosures or innovations coming through research here. We've opened that up now to people who can see a way to collaborate with Curtin. So it's not just researchers, it's anyone who can see a way to collaborate either on research or perhaps in attending one of our programs or engaging with students on campus. So that's that first, how do we shift that sort of culture towards entrepreneurial activity? Then we have a bunch of capability-building programs. So there's a first-stage program called Ignition that's run by the Faculty of Business Law here, and we collaborate closely with them on that. It's a program opened up to the general community, and people pay to go along. But we send every year around 20 scholars who are researchers, research students general students who have an idea that they want to develop, but it's at an early stage. So you go in with an idea and then you get content on business model development and intellectual property, marketing, finance, venture capital, those sort of topics. And at the end of the week, it's an intensive week, they come out with a more cohesive communication package around that. So it's a pitch deck essentially, and they put that in front of investors at the end. Hopefully, if they've got something that they've tested and looks like a viable business proposition, we will then push them to the next stage. And there's another program we have, which is a uh, novelty called Curtain Accelerate. So that steps on to the next stage of seeing whether or not a sustainable business model can be built around these opportunities. And usually you have teams going into that program that have a prototype or have done some sort of validation testing in the marketplace so they can get something in front of customers. And the next phase is to see whether or not they can do that in a way that's going to be sustainable over a period of time. And we try with that program to be a little bit more specific with the mentoring. So the program runs for 10 weeks, they get structured mentoring, which is tailored really to their specific stage of development, their market sector. We try and make introductions to the network that we have with people who can particularly help them with the stage that they're at or the issues that they're confronting. They also get $5,000 to help build out their business proposition and some co-working space. So uh, every year, that's a selective program, so we Get applicants in, and we select around about 10 teams that go through that program. We can also invest in teams. We've run a pre seed fund now at Curtin for over 10 years. We have an allocation of up to half a million a year every year, and we can put in half a million to any one project. It's a capped program, so it's reasonably early focused seed funding. But we have uh, over the years invested in 22, I think, companies. Of those companies and investments, we've uh, exited six for some return. We've shut six, and the remainder are still going in some shape or form, and they've generated sales of around about 200 million. The companies that have received that investment, and they've had received follow-on funding of around about 260 to 70 million from venture investors and other sources of funding. It's a reasonably modest program, but we think it's been quite successful from our perspective. It's certainly returned the money that we have put into it, and then a little bit more. The other programs, uh, we run an entrepreneur in residence program, so trying to bring in experienced business people who have been successful to inspire and motivate and challenge people towards that sort of pathway of entrepreneurship. And a bigger, broader community program, West Tech Fest, is a program we set up really to try and address the issue that Perth is a reasonably isolated market from the tech perspective. So trying to attract entrepreneurs and investors from national and international environment to perth every year so that local people can connect with them so that's the sort of suite of programs
1: i think i had a question about west tech fest as well how did that come together how did you start because i think you were a co-founder of that you helped get it off the ground
0: yeah that's right it came out of again that challenge that we have uh, we talked about uh, before we started the interview of the advantages of being in an isolated place like perth (laughs) if for things like covid in that you can close off your borders and get no cases which allowed us to live relatively freely. The disadvantage is it's a long way for anyone to come. And so we're quite isolated from the large capital markets, the tech capital markets, and some of the centers of tech entrepreneurship around the world. And so it's difficult for people to see that pathway for how they might build a company. You can have great ideas and you can get them to a certain stage, but how do you scale something significantly? So that was a challenge that we have here in Perth, and we were thinking about ways that we can attract people to come to WA. So that local people can connect with them and see a pathway to those global connections and scale, and so we started with a, a program many years ago called Univation, which was showcasing commercially relevant technology out of the universities here in Western Australia. And one of those events, we invited an international speaker through a local connection here, Larry Lopez, who's a ex senior exec from Silicon Valley Bank who was relocated back to Perth, and he had great connections into the valley. Through his connections, we were able to identify a guy, Bill Tai, who's quite a significant and successful angel investor globally. And he came to Perth to speak at this conference and liked it because he's also a kite surfer. And so, taking advantage of our natural wind power, he liked the location here. And then (laughs) we looked at ways that we could continue to entice him back. So, he liked to come out with his friends to kite surf. We formulated various events around that network of people because they're great connections when they're here and so they can get what they like from a personal point of view, but we get to use their knowledge and expertise while they're here. And over the years, that morphed from initial day conference to a national competition. We called OzApps for a while, which is trying to bring together all uh, ideas for global mobile web cloud computing ideas when apps were prominent, say reaching more significant prominence 10 years ago. He was a leader in that area at the stage. And so we use that as a focal point to attract national interest. Over time, the competition has now gone global. It morphed into a competition called Extreme Tech Challenge, which Bill ties is senior part of We run that as part of a week-long festival of events really focused around technology entrepreneurship. So there's things like angel investment dinners and technology showcases and high school events and student events to try and encourage early-stage entrepreneurs and then more senior people from the national and international arena come to Perth and when they were able to and talk about latest trends in various technology areas. So it's morphed into quite a significant local event which brings together the tech community here.
1: That's amazing. Bill, is it entrepreneur in residence or executive in residence as well? We've had
0: various appointments for him. He's got an honorary doctorate here at Curtin. He's a visiting professor and also uh, entrepreneur in residence. Not so much in residence and certainly not at the moment, um, <laughs> but when he was able, he'd come out at least a couple of times a year. Really is a good, again, inspiration for local startups, good connector of people able to identify opportunities early, connect them to the right people or the right markets so that they can scale quickly if they have what it takes.
1: You are, as you have said, Western Australia. Western Australia is responsible for around half of exported goods from Australia, significant mining industry in the state. Does that economic reality have any impact on your activities? Do you see a lot of commercialization in industrial applications or is it tricky to generate inbound investment for other sectors like life sciences?
0: Yeah, as you would know, the key elements for a successful tech transfer commercialization that you need experienced management, you need access to skilled workforce, you need sophisticated capital markets, and you need that sort of entrepreneurial mindset. Now, Western Australia has those in spades in the mining industry. So anything to do with mining, early stage mining projects, you can get funding for, you can get people for. There's a lot of knowledge around town, around particularly the market. So that means that technology that relates to mining services or efficiencies in mining or practice of mining. We get a lot of interest in and so probably our more successful, so a couple of our more successful commercialization stories, a company called Scanalize and a company called High so were both related to mining services in some way, shape or form and drew on that expertise and knowledge and local customer base to establish their position. So that's the positive. The negative is everything in this town is focused on mining <laughs> almost. So getting the same level of interest, knowledge, awareness around Other tech areas is a little more difficult. A lot of the best and brightest go into the mining industry. A lot of the money goes into the mining industry. A local customer base is all about mining. So that's, again, why we looked at things like West Tech Fest. So how can we try and bring in some of these skills and knowledge that helps lift the awareness here and help diversify the economy? So it is a challenge for us.
1: One of the biggest successes that has come out of Perth, the City was Canva, of course, the online graphics platform. Adia Schiffman wrote a guest comment in the Financial Review in September, and he said the success of Canva has bolstered the reputation of Australian VCs because both Airtree and Blackbird were investors. Do you think that's right? Do you think curtain spinouts typically go to Australian VCs for capital, or do they look overseas for money?
0: We have a close connection with the Canva team in that Bill Tai, he was one of the early seed investors of Canva. And in fact, I think he was probably one of their first investors and connected them to another early investor, Lars Rasmussen, who helped them find one of their co-founders who became instrumental in the product build and really introduced them to a global network of people who could assist them in that early stage of populating the company with the right people and then funding it at the right stage and connections to groups like Blackbird, for example. It's a great story. The two founders who were Perth-based and have now moved the company to Sydney, Melanie and Cliff really took advantage of those networks and grabbed things with both hands and ran hard with them and you can see the success that they've had. I think it's true to say that that sort of story that it's possible and that you can generate significant wealth as a result of investment in this tech area is a good path beater if you like or a pathfinder for others to say that Not only can you build a canva yourself perhaps and be part of that sort of success story, but you can invest in those companies and it can lead to significant wealth generation. So definitely a positive. A lot of our companies, we probably tap into local private high net worth markets. So I mentioned that there's a lot of success here in the mining industry. So a lot of people have made money out of the mining industry here. Some are adventurous enough to look beyond the mining industry, although Those numbers are limited and so we do tap into people who have had success and experience in mining but now looking at diversifying what they might be interested in. We see people like that. We will look wherever that we think that there might be funding sources, so we're not necessarily limited to Perth, but I'm sure you've heard from others and your own experience that venture investors tend not to be too keen on investing in companies. That are too far away for them to have some significant influence, or there's these adages about Silicon Valley investors. It's got to be on a certain highway for them to be able to access or drop in to see how things are going, or address concerns or address problems as they arise. So Perth, whilst people from the whilst there's uh, venture groups from the east coast come over regularly, it's an extra burden and extra hurdle that we have to confront that people, you know. Am I going to be able to get on a plane every week or every second week or every third week to come and visit my company and see how they're going and have significant influence on how they develop? So it's a problem. Having said that, we have been able to generate investment from certainly the East Coast of Australia and there is networks we have through West Tech Fest and Bill that um, we always test with propositions that we have.
1: You've mentioned money being a challenge. Curtin is one of five universities, I think, in Perth, quite a big university city. What is your view of the city? Is there anything that is working well or are there challenges beyond money that you still need to tackle?
0: Yeah, look, I think Perth, the disadvantage and the advantage again is that it's small and isolated on the disadvantage side. The advantage side is it's small and isolated and that means from the advantage point of view that instead of six degrees of separation, we're more like one or two degrees separation max if you want to talk to someone in Perth It's not that hard to get in front of people, even CEOs of some of the bigger companies here or the premier or whoever it might be, it's possible to get senior government and business people and connect with them. So it creates that sort of local community effect in a significant way, which is helpful. I think that also creates more of a collegiate relationship between the institutions here because, again... Collaboration is important in tech development and so usually the easiest people to collaborate with are people who are close by because you can see them regularly, interact with them regularly and share experiences with them. There's a lot of significant collaboration between the institutions here. So that's a plus as well. The downside, of course, it's a small market, particularly outside the mining sector, and it's a finite market because it's just far enough away from the east coast of Australia that it's actually closer to Singapore from Perth than to go to, say, Sydney, for example. So a lot of the thought in Perth at the moment is maybe looking north as opposed to looking east and how we might develop relationships into the region. And, in fact, Curtin does have quite a a significant reach into the region. So we have a campus in Singapore. We have a campus in Miri in Malaysia. We have also a campus in Mauritius and one in Dubai. So it's trying to expand that international footprint, increase connections for us into the region.
1: I always forget... How massive Australia is. It's not easy to travel from (laughs) Sydney to Perth. It will take you a few hours on a plane. It
0: is a long way, yeah. I mean, it can be five hours on the plane, so you can get a long way in that time. And Singapore is about the same, actually. So before our current situation, I was probably going up to Singapore as much as going somewhere like Sydney and trying to develop relationships there because a lot of large companies also have a technology hub in Singapore that is their regional hub. So they have tech scouts there for some of the big pharmaceutical companies and big engineering companies. They have them based in Singapore as opposed to anywhere else in the region. So they're reasonably accessible from our perspective anyway.
1: You're also director of KCA. What is your view of the Australian or even Australasian ecosystem in general?
0: Actually, I stepped down from KCA 10 years on the board. So it was time for fresh blood. So, but I enjoyed being involved in that organisation for, for many years. And we have done some benchmarking, of course, with other jurisdictions. Funnily enough, having talked to colleagues in other countries, it's the same everywhere in that everyone's always seems to be beating themselves up about why they don't do this better. So how can we get more out of the research investment that we make? How can we increase the amount of product and service opportunities that are arising from research? And Challenges are the same here as they are, or pretty similar as they are in other countries. There's currently a lot of conversation about this because there's quite a push from the national government. To do more in this area and to try and see a better dividend, as they call it, from the research investment that's being made. But if you compare Australia in terms of percentage GDP invested in research or percentage of GDP that industry invests in research, it's quite low compared to some of the people we like to compare ourselves to, like the UK and like Canada and like the US and places like this. So we've got to be careful about the comparisons we make and why perhaps we don't perform as well as we might. It's also we look at things like GDP percentage venture investment, early-stage venture investment, and again, quite low in Australia compared to those countries. So it's almost a tenth of the amount of money invested in early-stage venture here compared to Canada or the UK. And if you look at innovation or research-intensive companies, the number of those that we have here in Australia, again, we don't have a long list of those. So I think the most recent data that I saw on that was that Out of a list of the most research-intensive companies globally, our first entry is around about 170, and it's the national telecommunications carrier, Telstra, which is not really necessarily known for its innovative product development. So we do have a couple of structural issues and challenges that need to be addressed if we're going to really improve performance. And that starts with more investment in R&D, more industry interest and investment in R&D and culture shift around that we should be looking to develop new products and services and uh, doing that locally and manufacturing them here and selling them globally. Having said that, I think if you look at some of the more traditional tech transfer metrics, we don't do too badly compared to some of the peers. So if you do it on a research investment basis, so per $100 million of research investment, I think... On a number of metrics like converting disclosures into research, into license agreements and the like, then we do pretty well at that sort of translation. If you look at converting research dollars into commercialization income, we don't do too badly if you look at it from that benchmarking point of view. Certainly, there's a lot more that could be done. We could do more. There's more startups. We don't probably do as many as we could well, there's not as many per 100 mil of uh, researching expend spend here as there are in other jurisdictions. And there's certainly room for improvement. And I think that a couple of things we're talking to the federal government now about how we might address that. It's really around the reward of this sort of activity and risk money at that early stage, upskilling people so that they understand this process of product and service development from an early stage. So there are things that can be done. It's a long-term game.
1: That would have been... A follow-up question is the federal government, do they not understand how it works or is it just because you've had a lot of change? Oh, we can't talk in the UK, we've had five prime ministers in 15 years. <laughs> but is, it, is it because there hasn't been a long-term stable government, That there are elections quite a lot?
0: Yeah, um, look, I think the UK certainly has made a much longer-term commitment to this than has happened in Australia and we're quite jealous of the various programs that you have there in supporting specifically technology commercialization and upskilling of commercialization and that process of rewarding universities for performance in that area. I think we would like to have a similar sort of program in place here, we don't. Some people sort of talk about it's your victim, your own success in Australia, because there is such a successful resources, mining industry here that is very significant and throwing off very significant export income that you're not challenged as much to look at alternatives. That may be true. Certainly the resource industry dominates as far as export income and employment and lobbying power with the government. And then there's the agricultural industry as well, which is very significant too and generates that sort of export income that just demands the focus of policymakers, I suppose. So there's not huge amounts of time on a regular basis, at least spent on this. Having said that, this current government is certainly very vocal about trying to increase performance in commercialization, tech transfer and trying to convert ideas that are developed in research institutions into products and services and benefit and impact in the economy. So it's an ongoing discussion.
1: Very long-term discussion. I imagine I'm, sometimes I'm surprised. <laughs> how- well,
0: you would know that very well. I mean, and it's not the same. It's a very, it's very, it's very similar to other jurisdictions too. And I look, I think everyone always reflects on. Even I was reading an article recently about the US someone in the US writing a critical article about the level of performance of US institutions in this area too, where we over here probably look to the US as something that we would like to emulate, but they're looking at themselves and saying, Why aren't we doing more? This it's not enough, so
1: Yeah, the grass is always greener, I suppose. Oh something else as well. How does your Start portfolio, engagement from research is fair when it comes to equality, diversity and inclusion. Do you have numbers? Do you track that?
0: Yeah, interestingly enough, we were asked to do this recently. We have a commercialization advisory board here that provides overall input guidance around the framework we have for commercialization and entrepreneurship development. And we have mainly external representatives on that that are a mix of successful entrepreneurs, investment people. And uh, it was raised at our recent meeting that we should do an assessment of it. So we went and looked at the numbers of people that we have representing various, at least gender, was the focus of that assessment. And the results of the assessment were that the numbers somewhat reflects the population, the makeup of the faculties from which we draw. So the numbers in there are biased somewhat towards a large proportion of men, particularly in science and engineering, which is our major draw for disclosures. And then health sciences is probably about 50-50, and our numbers sort of reflect those proportions, but a little bit worse. So we probably have a worse representation than the faculty numbers would indicate, but it certainly followed a similar bias. So what do we do with that? It's interesting. Some of the conversations were uh, about how we promote market programs and to whom and the impression that we're giving when we do so. and any uh, unconscious bias that might be associated with the way that we are doing those things. So it's a very current topic, certainly around the entrepreneurship programs that we run. It's something we're thinking about whether we run female-focused events because I know that others have found that when they do that, they get better attendance of women to those events and perhaps greater number of them would come if it was a mixed event, at least in the initial interaction. Sometimes perhaps some women find that Little less intimidating i guess it's very topical and it's something that we're currently thinking about how we address because our desire and our aim is to try and get a better balance the program i mentioned earlier ignition which is our sort of early stage entrepreneurship capability building program interestingly has been about 50 50 on gender at least so that's promising on racial diversity look i think curtain is a pretty diverse population. We draw a lot from international academics, so a lot from Asia, Europe, not so many from the US or Latin America, but a lot of Europeans, a lot of Asian countries represented in the mix here. So that does give us a reasonable degree of diversity from that perspective.
1: How is your own office looking? How do you fare when it comes to diversity?
0: Yeah, so with our traditional tech transfer staff staff, we only have a reasonably small number. There's four of us and it's quite biased towards men, I must say. So that three and one on our entrepreneurship activities, it's more dominated by women. So people who are doing the sort of community building around the entrepreneurial programs I mentioned and coordinating and delivering those. We have four people working on that part of the program and they're all women.
1: With four people, I imagine it's quite difficult to get a balance as well. The only balance is having 50-50 at that point, because e- either way, you're going <laughs> to... <laughs> you're a little bit skewed here, yeah, that's right. It's true. You've been at Curtin since 2008. you judge from Biosignal, although before that, you worked for Unisearch and Health Commercialised Medical and Life Science Research out of UNSW. What lessons have you learned in your career that you are applying at Curtin today? Be patient.
0: <laughs> I think be resilient. And I know that, um, again, this is something shared across the globe in this sector. It does take a long time to see the fruits of your labor in the tech transfer and commercialization activity. So from initial disclosure to something that is generating significant return or has even translated into a new product or service, you're commonly talking about five, maybe 10 years. So it, you do need to be quite resilient. And often along the way, things don't go the way that they were hoped or anticipated to go. So you need to be adaptable and be able to get back up and shift thinking and move ahead. So that's something I think I've I've certainly learned over the years is um, it's a long-term game. And really, to have impact, you really need to also to bring the rest of the institution with you. So Because we have quite modest resources, some of the activities that we've done is really focus the resources we have into building significant programs and getting consistency in those programs over a long period of time. And when they're working, build on them as opposed to trying a whole bunch of new things every year. If something's working, let's build it. Let's build that brand and establish the reputation of the program, get more people through it, and hopefully convert the numbers that we have in the institution towards our goal rather than having to do all the heavy lifting ourselves. So if we can build capability and people in the staff cohort to understand more about what a commercial proposition looks like and what's required to, to initiate a partnership with an industry group or a license agreement or what even a patent is, if they can get some knowledge and awareness familiarity themselves, then that makes our job easier. We can focus on things that are a little bit further down the track rather than Spending a lot of time early on doing very early sort of capability building ourselves. So that's something as well that we've really focused on here is how do we turn that culture, build capability, try and get that to a point where the institution's working alongside us.
1: Is there anything you would specifically say to someone starting out in tech transfer today, going into that career?
0: Yeah, look, I think the key things you need in this career, especially in a small office like ours, is an interest in a diversity of fields, the old jack of all trades so you touch a whole bunch of different aspects of that business and technology process without necessarily being able to go deeply into any of them so i think if you're interested in getting involved you want to get a reasonably diverse set of experiences certainly getting experience in the business community so an interest in technology is very important from an academic point of view but Really, the way that you're going to add value to projects is not through your technical expertise necessarily, because we have a university full of people that have got a great depth of experience and expertise in a whole range of different technical areas. So you're probably going to add more value on the business side. So understanding business structures and particularly that process of new product development. So if you can get experience in a company that is developing new products and services, that's going to be invaluable in a career in tech transfer. So how you get something to market and the various aspects of that from regulatory to marketing to manufacturing, logistics, pricing, all of those sorts of things, exposure to all of those things is going to help you and help you add value to the projects as they come through.
1: If you had a magic wand, is there anything you would change about tech transfer, either at Curtin or generally?
0: Yeah, well, as I mentioned earlier, the two things that we are trying to lobby the government for at the moment that we see is critical, more high-risk funding. So... That's funding at the very, very early stage, almost from a venture point of view, it's pre-seed. So money to develop prototypes and do pilot trials and run proof of concept sorts of uh, activities. We have a little bit, but sometimes people say that if you've got a good project, it'll find money. So money will come to the projects that are good. And I think that's somewhat true. But if you really want to shift the game and increase the numbers of projects and products and services that are coming through, you've got to take a risk on more. A lot are going to fall over. That's definitely going to happen. But if you want to get more through, you've got to pull more through that early stage process and take a bit more risk. So that's one aspect to it, I think. Also, reward and recognition for research staff for this sort of activity. I think this is, again, a common problem globally that research staff have a whole range of different demands on their time. Commercialization being one that's probably a few down the list. It is a particular problem about, well, how do you motivate research staff towards this sort of activity? How do you recognize this in their career pathway so that they're not disadvantaged, at least by doing this sort of activity, that they're in fact incentivized and rewarded for taking a pathway towards a commercialization of their work? So not just from a financial sense, but if they want to stick to their academic career, that they're also able to do so and spend time and focus on this as well. So I think if we can do something about those two things, they're most likely to shift the
1: dial as far as outcomes. You've mentioned, I think, six exits you had from your pre-seed fund. Are there any examples of portfolio companies that you are particularly proud of or that have been significant successes?
0: Yeah, so probably our most successful to date has been a company called HiSize. and that was based on some work out of exploration geophysics here, Guy Anton Kepik and Milovan Yarosovic, a couple of their colleagues from industry. So they identified a way that seismic technology could be applied. It's usually applied in oil and gas exploration, but it hasn't been applied in minerals exploration for a variety of reasons around the geological structures involved in minerals. And so these guys cracked that process of being able to apply that technique, which is a very good way of exploring at depth and mapping out all bodies at depth, take it from oil and gas to minerals. It was a good project in that it sort of touched those advantages that we have here in WA so we had people who had knowledge of the problem we had people locally who are customers who had the problem we were able to populate the company with graduates who were coming out of Curtin in that area so that they could access the skilled workforce they need there was people willing to fund it and in fact it was somewhat bootstrapped because we were able to generate enough business around it in the early stages that it just generated profits and put those back into further development So some of the early employees were Curtin employees. The CEO was a Curtin graduate. We developed to a reasonably significant stage to a point where Curtin really probably wasn't going to add much more as an investor because we have a cap on the amount of money that we put in. And so it needed to get to that next stage of growth. And we went out and ran a process to sell down our interest in the company and did that in a structured way and got a number of different bidders, a number of whom were also Curtin alumni. And so now a couple of alumni have come in as shareholders in that business to drive it to the next stage of growth. And so it was really quite a neat example of the power the university could bring to bear on these things by providing the right resources at the right stage, people, connections across the different networks. So I think that was a pretty neat one. We've also had a couple of companies that we've listed publicly. One of the things I didn't mention about funding In Western Australia, the private capital markets for tech are reasonably limited, but there is often quite an active public sector, early stage listing market here. You can list a company reasonably early, or at least for periods of time you're able to. There's pros and cons of that because the compliance issues are quite onerous and expensive for a listed entity, but there are pros that you can get access to significant amounts of capital if you're growing quickly and performing well and the market likes what you're doing. And from an investor point of view, there is those compliances, so you've got good certainty around the business being properly operated. So people do tend to list early here. And we've had a couple of companies that have done that one called Paincheck, one called Isotano, which are going reasonably well and selling products in the marketplace and internationally, in fact, and have been
1: able to raise funds
0: that way. And it was good to go through that process.
1: Sadly, that almost brings us to the end of the time we had for this. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to tell people or anything that you want to reiterate?
0: The programs that we've talked about, some of the first stages of the process we see here at Curtin, uh, some of these programs are now very well established. We're looking at what's the next phase and something that we're thinking about at the moment is sort of a studio venture model or a startup venture model. So we're able to, as with the example of HiSize, bring to bear the resources of the university for early stage startups And that includes the infrastructure, the access to people, access to expertise. So where there's someone who has an early stage idea as a startup and can benefit from access to those elements, looking at how we can apply those to fast track those companies quite significantly, identify them early, and then drill down support to scale them. So that's our next sort of stage of evolution with the work that we're doing here. And we've got some good interest from the local community on that and hoping that we'll get support for it.
1: Amazing, I look forward to following that journey and learning more as there's more to tell.
0: Yes, well, hopefully one day we'll meet in person again.
1: Well, yeah, it's almost been two years now. I think you were one of the last people that I managed to see in real life. So Yes, it was, uh, it was a
0: yeah. good event. The university venturing event. When are you next running one of those?
1: February is the next one for Monterey. Yeah, that was good fun. Yeah, obviously I will let you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, think ev- everything <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever is- be allowed out of our <laughs> box here. <laughs>
0: We're locked up tight at the moment, but one day.
1: One day. Well, Roman, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you again and find out more about Curtin. It's good to see you. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Healers. It is produced by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find us at globaluniversityventuring.com On LinkedIn, as Global University Venturing, or on Twitter, at GU Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find them on inearproduction.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an interview. We'd also really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps us grow our audience. You can also reach out to me directly with feedback. Just email Theles at globaluniversityventuring.com. That is T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone.
0: Goodbye.